0: My name's Catherine Carr and this is Relatively, the podcast all about potentially the longest relationships of your life.
1: <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> absolutely hilarious already, yeah? That says oh, it all, all,
0: Catherine, I think. Yeah. I'll be bringing siblings together to talk about the connections they have as adults, as well as what it was like growing up together. This week we're talking to Mick Fleming,
1: aka Pastor Mick, Elbish, Bish,
0: and Sarah Frankel. If I get emotional, I am okay with that, by the way. But I'll also talk to them separately to get
2: a more private take on the relationship. His character before, violent, selfish, self-centred,
1: almost demonic. I think I always loved my family. I just didn't know how to express it. I became cold and I became a career criminal.
0: And with the help of our sponsors, Find My Past, we'll be delving a little further back into the family history of all of our guests.
1: <laughs> wow, that's, that's a great line, isn't it? That's a
0: good story. Yeah. I'm going to preach
1: on that on Absolutely. Sunday.
2: Absolutely,
0: Brothers and sisters are never straightforward. Before we start, Pastor Mick runs the church on the street in Burnley, where this episode was recorded. You might just hear some of the sounds of the excellent after-school club in the background.
1: It's very cold up here, yeah. What Nice and warm in here, where we are.
0: Mick and Sarah are Burnley-born and bred, and shared a carefree childhood until the death of another sibling, which turned life suddenly black and white. For Mick, who experienced other trauma as a child, it was too much, and he spiralled into addiction and a life of crime. We talk about that, about how God saved him, the true steadfastness of a mother's love, and why calling Sarah sister means so much but she started by introducing the family and their love
2: of practical jokes. I'm uh, Sarah Frankel, recently married, was Fleming and I have an older sibling, Marie, and then Mick, myself, and then Claire is the youngest, so five.
1: So I'm kind of second oldest and we had one that passed sadly passed away so she would have been older than me in the pecking order.
2: I thought you know he was special you know he was a as a the first boy in a family of girls uh my mum you know he was I mean we, we can laugh about it now but he really was the golden boy you know and I've got over the resentments I'm fine with it I'm fine with it now <laughs> um, speaking of which if you had to wind him up because brothers and sisters can uh,
0: always wind each other up what would you do what button would you press to sort of really get him going <laughs>
2: Oh, my goodness. Uh, There are so many. I think probably thrusting a diary or something in front of his face and saying, like, look at your diary or something just really simple like that because he knows that he's a bit disorganised. But, I mean, our relationship, even going back, was always about poking fun at each other, you know, the the practical joke that he used to do. So it'd be something like that, I think. Apparently you were a bit of a practical joker when you were kids, Mick.
1: Oh, blimey, some of the stuff was amazing, honestly. So Sarah and my other sister, Claire, they put uh, cat food in my dad's uh, tea <laughs> and stirred it up. And as he's eating it, he were a bit deaf, my dad. And uh, they started going, meow. Oh, honestly, and we're just absolutely in stitches, you know. <laughs> and I can go on and on. And I, I remember goading my other sister, Claire, to... I said, well, if you hit dad overhead with that shoe... I said, he'll it, really laugh. And She weren't so old, really weren't so old. So I didn't think she'd do it. And she sneaked up behind her. She whacked him over the head, we're still in, nearly killed him. I'm like, oh. and he went, he went absolutely mad, honestly.
2: Oh, gosh. I suppose the one that sticks in my mind was when I was probably, oh, gosh, 10, maybe. So what would he be in his teenage years? I went out fishing with a group of people, pretending to fish for, like, cod, which we're never going to get, are you, in in Ribble. So, um, and the guys that I was with and the group of people, they had, like, maggots, and they were, like, wriggling in, like, this pot, and I was absolutely phobic. So a few of them put them down my top and stuff, and, like, like you do. Yeah, so absolute trauma. I must have come home and said, oh, I've had maggots down my top, it's all vile. So I was in the shower, and... uh, (laughs) with a curtain round and he I know I could kill him for this he might not even remember this you know I probably doesn't he opened the bathroom door and he chucked I'm talking a bucket full of rice over the top of the shower and <laughs> shouted maggots to me they were real maggots and, it, and because of the water they were moving I was screaming <laughs> absolutely screaming I, I, ran off. Oh, It's absolutely hilarious already, yeah. That's,
1: that's I mean. Yeah, trauma. No wonder, no wonder we've a family that's had trauma. <laughs> yeah. We're like, yeah, we had some, we had some, we did have some laughs though, I mean,
0: yeah, for sure. Yeah. I wonder if you could paint a picture for me of what it was like growing up in the early, early days.
2: Growing up in the early days, it was a, we were very protected, by our family, I think in the community that we were brought up in, you couldn't get away with anything. You had to be reasonably on the straight and narrow because somebody would tell a tale over you. You know, if you threw eggs over whoever, Mrs. Dent, you know, you'd know about it. But there was a freedom, an absolute depth of freedom before uh, Anne passed away um, that I probably have now. But as a child, it was it was a different sort of freedom. Mm -hmm. And what was your environment like? Where were you playing?
1: We play on the back street, on parks. Uh, I mean, mine was slightly different, really, as well. But even before I died, I was a nice little boy, really, bro. Just getting a bit risky. I'd like—I uh, used to like setting things on fire, like you do, you know, and and breaking into things. So it wasn't heavy, heavy stuff, but the the like the telltale signs of there being something wrong with there. Before my sister died, but I, I agree with Sarah there was a, it was very much like I will want to remember it in my head it 's very much like a wonderful time before I, I can see the sun shining in my memory and and the people and the faces of the children that we played with and stuff and it was all good and after afterwards, it was dark, there was no sunshine shining it was distinctly different. I think we'd both say it were black and white. The fun was sort of gone, really, and uh play had ended.
0: So you said um, there would have been Anne, and I think that's probably a good place to start the story. Yeah. She was your sister who died of a heart attack really young. I wonder if you could tell me about her and what happened okay. to her from your point of view, please.
2: Yeah, I'd love to. What an opportunity to speak about... Um, if I get emotional, I am okay with that, by the way, because... I didn't get emotional about it for thirty thirty odd years, so I'm actually okay with it. So don't don't feel weird about it. if I cry; it's fine. Um, so yeah, um, and uh, she yeah she shockingly died of um, sort with an as a of an asthma attack and her heart did give way. I was eight years old at the time. The whole family completely changed in that second. Unfortunately, as as an eight-year-old child, it was the day before my birthday that she passed away, which was at the same time unbeknown to me that my brother was uh, assaulted. We didn't know this about the assault until many, many years later in recovery, but um, as a child, uh, when she passed away, I didn't know where she was. I thought she, you know, she just left me and gone away, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and she promised me to take me to see I think it was Greece, the first Greece film for my <laughs> birthday the day after. So as you can imagine as a child, all that confusion. Yeah, but things changed from that moment.
1: Everybody became individuals. So we stopped being a family really, is the truth. Nobody knew how to speak about it. Nobody knew where we fit in. Everything were different. I think when children see the parents in pain, they struggle. And uh, it caused kind of ripples probably right up until this day, I guess.
0: She also alluded to, and I know you've spoken publicly about this, the fact that at around the same time, which is really horrific to contemplate, you'd been sexually assaulted as a child... And so those two things are huge traumas. Individually, they're huge traumas. But for you, they came together.
1: Yeah, so I uh, went off to school. and I always took the shortcut and uh, i jump over the river and then walk through the park and walk up and I just took doodling my way to school. And uh, I basically felt like a, a woolly jumper, kind of like. So the arm right across my mouth. And then uh, I was dragged into like a there was like a bandstand type of place with, but we were covered around the sides. And it happened in there. And uh, I sort of remember there was a bottle, an empty bottle. Like, like I think it were empty. And in my mind for 20 years, I'd imagined picking it up and smashing him around the head with it and, and really laying into him. But... It was my mind wanting wanting that to be true. Yeah. But it wasn't. It wasn't true, you know. But I did see the bottle, but I tried to replay it in my mind to make it different. What happened was it felt like afterwards that I'd put my head in a bucket of water. That's the best way I can describe it. So it's like the sounds are going on outside of rain, but they're muffled. You can't, you just can't hear. You're not part of it. You're just not. Quite there, and that's what it felt like. And also, I couldn't see in colour either. Uh, really? For some, yeah, for some strange reason, yeah, everything was black and white.
0: So they're very big things: death and sexual assault. Too big for an eight-year-old, as you say, to completely understand. So, how would you, as an eight-year-old, have described the change?
2: So before, Anne um, I felt very safe as a child, very uh, loved, very nurtured, busy full of life, full of fun, big Irish Catholic family, one of many families on the back street. It was fun. And then the day she passed away became my fault. It was my birthday. She, If I hadn't had a birthday, she'd still be here. So, And as an Irish Catholic family, you know, the, the coffin was in the front room and the prayers around the coffin as a child. Seeing that horror... Um, Fear entered into my heart, so into my life. Then, yeah. And so, what did that look like um, in terms of your behaviour? Did you
0: take all the of those feelings of self-blame and hatred and fear inside your sort
2: of oh, quite yeah. little yeah. heart, Absolutely. or did you act out? No, I didn't do. Uh, I suppose what Mick did, really. I mean, a lot of people go outwards. I went in internally. I went inside. So, control tried to manage other people's feelings, tried to watch them. I was a really good watcher. Mm. Uh, Very manipulative as well. Uh, Trying to control, you know, so bad things don't happen. That's how it Mm. felt to me. Sarah described her
0: feelings as kind of all going internal. She really didn't like herself. She blamed herself. She didn't understand it. And she kept it all bottled up inside. And she said, in contrast maybe not total contrast, but in some contrast, your behaviour was kind of all on the outside?
1: I guess so, yeah. I think my response was on the outside, but uh, on the inside, it was... uh, My response was deliberate. Uh, It wasn't accidental. So I decided to be bad. It was like I felt there was no space for me anymore. So I saw my mum and dad and the younger children, and it was like they were a family, but there were no space for me. And uh, and so I became lonely and isolated and addicted uh, instantly, basically. I became an addict that day. I took some of uh, my mum's medication, and uh, uh, I don't even know why I took it. I just knew they were painkillers and I were in pain. Uh and I became, literally, it it worked. You know, it took the pain away. But unfortunately, as as we know with drugs, there's always a come down and you come straight back down and, and life's just as bad as it were before you took it. And then eventually it gets worse and worse and worse and worse because you're just masking it. I didn't know that then, but I know it now. But uh, I was just a traumatised child. And uh, I think for me, it... Uh, repress me emotionally.
0: This season of Relatively is sponsored by Find My Past, home of the 1921 census. The 1921 census doesn't just tell you about your relatives, it can also show you who lived where you live now, 100 years ago. Have you ever wondered who cooked where you now cook, or laughed where you now laugh, about the families that have called your home their home? Now you can find out by searching for your home's history in the 1921 census, exclusively available online at findmypast.co.uk.
1: Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
0: So if he was the golden boy in the sort of first boy in the family and all of that, then when he got angry and was acting out and drinking and his behaviour deteriorated, that must have been doubly hard for your mum and for the rest of the sisters to take.
2: It was different. Yeah, it was very difficult. My dad uh, was quite firm with him when we were younger, but my mum... I mean, I can laugh about it now, but she'd say things like, um, the police are bothering him, they're picking on him, he way, <laughs> that was my dad, you know. And she sort of protected him as well. I think it was only after, probably after mum died, that the harsh reality and the deterioration in, in him was very, very evident because his behaviours towards a family. And especially my father, who was an amazing man.
1: I mean, I think I've been clean about 12 years now, 13 years or something. So it's took a long time, you know, to gain trust. And uh, I got a relationship back with my dad. I built the relationship with my dad before he passed away. We were really close, you know, and I'd gone to see him in hospital when he had cancer, uh, spit in his face and told him I hoped he died. Oh so, that's, so, so that's the kind of person I were. And if my sister said or did I would to tell them to F off as well. You know, so you can see from the... That's a, that's a starting point. So you can see I wouldn't want, have wanted to be around me, you know, never, never mind anybody else, you know. I would have avoided myself if I could...
0: How did you maintain relationship or didn't you during the really darkest days? And I'll leave Mick to tell his story about exactly what went on. How did you maintain relationship as his sister or didn't you when things were really bad?
2: Uh, On and off. Fortunately, the three girls were very, very close uh, and we used to talk to each other about him and how worried we were about him. And I suppose we kept in touch with him because of my dad, because my dad loved him whatever, but he did put a really firm boundary in my dad eventually. But in the dark parts of it, um I wanted to be on a different planet for him. I didn't like him. I didn't know him. It was only when Mum died that I think that relationship um I suppose it was became more broken after Mum died. He went completely off the rails. I don't know how we managed to all stay in touch, to be honest.
0: And so the years that followed, Sarah described as very dark and very difficult. Could you... I didn't get her to tell me some of the the things that you're involved with. I'd like you to tell me, in your words, what happened from that point, that first painkiller, that first effort to stop the feelings.
1: Yeah, so I became uh, heavily addicted and very secretive and sort of became dangerous. So I used to hurt people for money. I had no real moral compass, I don't suppose. I used to carry guns, firearms, knives, machetes. I used to rob people. I used to do horrendous things, you know. I felt I had a coldness about me, you know. I probably was capable... Well, I was. I was capable of anything, mm-hmm. to be honest. Yeah. So it was like... don't know how to describe it. It's like being... Uh, self-centred but to the mics where you you just, nobody else is coming in you know, there's nothing else going to get in sometimes when I talk about it now I can talk a little, I can talk about it like him uh. not me still not wanting to own it sometimes not always but sometimes it's like I'm talking about somebody else you know
0: what was your relationship with your sister like? If you didn't really care about anybody else, did you care about her?
1: Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to protect them. I think because Anna died, I felt like I wanted to protect my sisters. I'd beat someone up because they said something to my sister. You better be careful. That's my sister. You know that type of feeling. them were the type of feelings, but. I think I always loved my family, I, uh, I just didn't know how to express it. I became cold and I became a career criminal, so everything was about money and anything that I wanted, so I'd have robbed them all, and I did. You know, I robbed my family blind.
0: You robbed your family?
1: Yeah, I robbed them all, I've robbed them all. Do you know what I mean? Anything I want, I'll take it, it's it's mine. And that's the sort of, the beauty of what's happened in my life, and the change that I have, and me finding faith is the forgiveness that they've had to wait and see that it's an authentic change and it is authentic and it is real and it's had a big effect on them. The The goodness and the change that's happened to me has had a massive impact on all of my family uh, and I thank God for that, I'm so grateful for that, uh, but it's took them a long time, they've had to see it, they've had to believe it, they've had to taste it and know that it's real.
0: Um- So I wonder then, his life, Mick's life, radically changed. What do you recollect of that change in him and what do you put it down to and how did you rationalise that going from this person that you just didn't want to know what he was up to to somebody who turned it
2: 180 degrees? Oh gosh, that's easy um, for me to say because I think the family got to a point of crisis really and then Mick... Got in touch with me and the girls, and he went into Inspire. What was Inspire? I think it still is now, and began a journey of being clean. But I suppose it first started when we, me, my dad, and my sister Claire, we went to the psychiatric unit to visit him because my dad wanted to go. I didn't really want to go, and that that was a turning point as a family, I think, because we realised how ill physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every single way he was.
1: Uh, I think it was just craving death, really. I just craved for death. So it's like I didn't really, really want to kill myself, but I didn't really want to live. So when the police had come for me, so they'd come on response many, many times, and I go him, them, I wanted them to shoot me. I just didn't really think I wanted to do it myself really but I was quite happy to let somebody else do it for me uh, and I had this thing in my head of I'll go out in a blaze of glory, you know they can gun me down, you know what I mean, I didn't want to live anymore in it, I just I'd come into the end of my own self and I'm becoming more and more psychotic and insane because of the drugs I'm taking mm. so in the end I was insane
2: mm. So the change came gradually but the way he behaved towards my dad was 180 degrees completely different so he'd gone from robbing stealing abusing my dad to every weekend spending time when he was ill with him taking him shopping um having a relationship with my dad um that was so humble you couldn't not notice it and I put that down to his relationship with God um, and because of that our family changed so my relationship with God grew and I became a, a completely free of the stuff that I carried as well it took a lot to trust him again sometimes even now I have moments of oh, what's he like you know and and what about your mum
0: your lovely mum whose death you said was a turning point in really a lot of mixed behaviour
2: what do you think she would make of him now oh my goodness she would be so proud you know he caused her a lot of heartache and a lot of pain you know she lost um, a daughter you know and she was uh, fearful that things were going to happen to all of us as she lived in fear you know of a child being taken away looking I mean he really was a golden boy you know I mean specialties, special teas th- special everything you know I mean he had a after she died Mick wanted money and things off my dad and and he said you know are having nothing but you can have this and it was a bible he'll tell you this story
1: I went round to try to get some jewelry to sell but the sisters had had it all so he said hey, this is all we've got your mums the bible and I only took it so he couldn't have it. I didn't take it because I wanted it or it were a nice thing. just didn't want him to have it.
2: Uh, an old-fashioned uh, Catholic Jerusalem Bible. I, I gave it him and, and Mick said, I'm only a flipping Bible. Chucked it to back at car, you know, like he would.
1: It was quite a few years later. I opened it and I found, like, there were letters in it and stuff. So there were loads of stuff inside it that my mum had wrote and put together. And I found, like some real gems
2: in that bible were prayers that my mum had written out for him and scriptures underlined it, it was just so profound um mm. and this is years later you know
1: there was a letter around uh, a prayer for people in addiction and someone had sent her and wrote that you know this is for your son for michael say this prayer and blah, 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 and she'd been, and I looked at the date on it and she'd been praying for me for 20 years oh. before she died for me to come out of this, and I thought she didn't really know. So I was so messed up, I thought people didn't know how bad I was, you know, and uh, I thought I had a really good front I a front, really, but they knew anyway.
2: Her heart, I think, just knew. I think there's something about a mother's instinct, mm. and she prayed, she was a praying mother, and uh, and the fruit is here today. But she would be here in this hub. And she'd be <laughs> telling everybody off, including him. She'd have a diary organised for him. She'd have the lot. <laughs> so, yeah, she'd be so proud of him. So your,
0: your mum was believing in you before you were believing in yourself?
1: Well, my mum was believing in God. And she was asking God, really. I don't think she believed in me. But she believed that God could change me. She couldn't fix me. Nobody could fix me. No doctors couldn't fix me. Nobody could fix me, and I couldn't fix myself. No. So it's the times when there is nothing else, and you come to the complete despair. Them's the times when, if there's only prayer left, at least it's something, and that's where the hope is.
0: So, on relatively, you know, we're really interested in family stories, and generally we talk about mums, dads, brothers, and sisters, people who may or may not, but usually shared a house and a sort of immediate history. But the sponsors of this podcast are Find My Past, and they're interested in much bigger family stories going right back. So in front of me on my computer, I've got your family tree and some research that the researchers have done into your family. And I wonder if I could just share one small story with you. Yeah. Yeah. This is about your paternal grandparents, Teresa Duffy, who married oh, yeah. William Fleming in Burnley. So yeah. you are Burnley yeah. born and bred. I mean, this is 1915. Mm. Yeah. They had a little boy called William Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Teresa was working as a cotton winder for Benny Thomber and son. Mm. Um, but this little story, it's not particularly revelatory, but I love it because it's mm. got newspaper clippings attached. So William Fleming was in a motorbike accident in 1933 and it was one of the first cases of um, drunk driving ever to be recorded, I think. <laughs>
2: yeah. Did you know? I didn't know that. Yeah,
1: I... he, he was an alcoholic. Yeah, yeah, he was an
2: alcoholic and he, yeah,
0: yeah I didn't know And it was... It, was in the, it was in the Burnley Express in 1933. And in the article, it was on the 20th of May, there's somebody who was interviewed nearby and they said, you, say, you said that he smelled of beer. Might that have been a <laughs> steak pie? And the answer was... <laughs> 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 and the answer was no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow, that's, that's a great line, isn't it? That's a good story.
2: That's
1: and a in great fact, line. It
2: the, real, the headline it?
0: says, Struck by Cycle, subtitle, Did rider smell of oxo or beer?
1: <laughs> I'm having that. I'm going to preach on that on Sunday. Absolutely. That's amazing. Oxo or beer. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, sadly, what happened to our grandad was, uh, he, had, he was alcoholic and he had so much. He was in the uh, First World War and... Uh, he were never right afterwards and uh, he took his own life. Oh. He was, Yeah, he was an alcoholic and he gassed himself in the 50s. Mm. So probably 20 years, about 20 years after the motorcycle incident.
0: I read once about siblings um, that nobody else understands the mess that you come from. And I wonder as adults, you know, you've both had journeys you've come to faith you've talked about these things you feel free from some of the negative feelings of fear and anger but whether it's comforting as adults now to have someone that you can maybe not travel back to horrible feelings but who understands that past
2: I think we're really privileged uh, as a community because not only do we have our own biological family that understand quite often where we're at but we have a whole body of people in this building that we connect to on a friendship level, um, as a community, that are the same.
1: We didn't have a great start in life with with the things that happened, blah, blah, blah. Listen, it's it's a picnic to what some of our friends that we sit down with have gone through and are still going through, you know, and we're able to share together who we are
0: You've got this whole community of people. So actually, this podcast is about brothers and sisters, step, half, adopted, whatever. But actually, you've got loads of brothers and sisters, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Um, and I do call her Sister Sarah because I love her in a different way to just being my blood sister. It's like, it's different. It's far deeper. I trust her. i trust her with anything. If she needed anything and I had it, I'd give it her. It's like we've shared so much pain we've been so mistrusting of each other mainly because of my behavior mainly but that's gone it's been broken and it and it it, the healing that's come from it and the going through the pain of, of all that stuff has created something brand new and fresh that we really could have only ever dreamt that we would have had you know and and the dreams become a reality but it's come through faith it's come through our faith
0: Thank you so much to Mick and to Sarah and
2: thank you too for listening. The family were just known as flembos, really. <laughs> like, that's what we were known as.
1: They used to call me Flembo, yeah. But some people still do.
2: <laughs> or a flemmer, you know. So that's that's if you said that to anybody on the back street, you'd be like, that's who we were.
0: To find out more about The Church on the Street or make a donation perhaps to their amazing work, head to COTS that's C O T S Ministries.co.uk. The links in the show notes, as are all the details about Mick's book, Blown Away, which is soon to be adapted for screen. Thank you to Tanita Tickeram for letting us use her amazing song. This is a pocket production, and sound design is by Nick Carter at MixSonics.com. Fireside, there's a good Tradition of love and hate Stand by The fireside, another rain May fall, your father's Calling you, you still Feel safe inside, only Your mom's too proud, your brother's Ignoring you